now we're about to have a conversation with Jelani Cobb, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker, author of The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama, and the Paradise the paradox of progress, paradise maybe for some. Uh, <laughs> in these comparatively. days, comparatively speaking, yes. <laughs> We're talking about the piece he put up in the post on on the New Yorker this Sunday, uh, the Battle of Charlottesville. And Jelani, good to talk to you once again. Welcome. It's uh, good to talk to you too. So there's a lot happened since you wrote the article, but let's start with this piece first. Um, can I? St- there, there, there are two pieces here: the very beginning and the very end of the article. But let me start with the beginning and hit the end right after that. Um, will you talk about George Lincoln Rockwell and a scene in Chicago mm-hmm. I remember very well uh, as a young man? And um, one I do not remember very well, but my father remembers very well from 1939 uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, with, with Kuhn's, K-U-H-N's, um, uh, fascist yeah. statement at, at, the, at the Madison Square Garden. So you started there for a very specific reason in those two places. Yeah, so we had this conversation about this. I was beginning to hear this conversation about this being unprecedented uh, in terms of what we saw on Saturday. And I was saying it, it actually isn't. You know, we've seen, you know, these Nazi and neo-Nazi mobilizations previously. Uh, and, of course, there's another I didn't mention because it's so well discussed, but that was also the 1978 one in Skokie, uh, which is, you know, famously the, the free speech case. Um but, you know, we saw this, 1978, 1966, 1939, and uh, one of the things that was uh, a commonality in those situations was that those uh, gatherings were universally thought of as morally repugnant. Uh, and, you know, the Nazi elements were kind of reduced to the fringe of American life, or American political life. Uh, and even, was, I guess, was notable is that in 1939, when the American public knew far less about the evils and depredations of Nazi Germany than, than we do now. Even then, uh, Fritz Kuhn was thought of as a uh, very troublesome figure uh, and, uh, you know, un-American and, and, you know, because of his uh, pro-Nazi sentiments. And so uh, fast forward to 2017 and we see this rally take place. We've increasingly seen the so-called alt-right, really, you know, white supremacist, um, neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates. We've increasingly seen them uh, treated as just another part of the spectrum of American political thought, uh, not as people who are outside the boundaries of the mainstream, not as people who are uh, fringe elements or, uh, you know, not to be taken seriously. But, but now they represent a actual. Uh, element of American public opinion. Uh, and that was furthered, if there was any question about that, it was furthered in the way the president responded uh, and you know, giving those very even-handed, uh, non-specific uh, denunciations of, of violence in general. And uh, then, of course, the White House saying that there had been violence on both sides and uh, the level of uh, even-handedness was, was striking was treated as if, you know, people who are Nazis and people who are opposed to Nazis, even if the people who were opposed, um, you know, had engaged in violence, too, that somehow that these people were morally equivalent. And also, the, the, the thing that was also striking to me is when he had that press conference about a, an entirely different matter, signing up some veterans bill, and was asked twice, once going back, to, as he went back to the podium, 
and and as he was leaving the room about the the support from David Duke and white supremacists, he just gave this weird look and walked away and didn't say a word, which was really odd. I, and then David Duke picked up on that later, saying uh, and others saying, "Well, this is tantamount to saying that he supports what we're doing." Right. Uh, and this is not the first time we've seen this. We saw the reluctance to disassociate himself from David Duke during the campaign. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that he retweeted, you know, uh, links to, he retweeted a Twitter accounts of white supremacists and tweeted out links uh, from white supremacist websites about uh, false statistics on uh, black crime. And, I mean, all sorts of associations is kind of one degree removed and then sometimes not even that, you know, between Trump and his uh, and these elements, you know, white supremacy, for over a year now. So of course, in this context, uh, you know, it looks like a kind of wink and nod. Uh, and so we've heard of being, uh, you know, damned by faint praise. Uh, in this case, uh, it's almost the inverse, whereas these groups are being praised by faint damnation. So when you write at the very end of your piece, which I thought was a really telling sentence, you wrote, what happened in Virginia was not the culminating battle of this conflict. It's likely a tragic preface of more of the same, to more of the same. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that for a minute. And what, that, what, is that, what does that mean to you when you say this, is, this could just be the, heart, the, 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 the uh, uh, tragic preface? What does that mean? So... One of the things that concerned me uh, when I was looking at the images coming out of Virginia is that uh, when you have these people, you know, get off of their couches and away from their computer screens and uh, go down to their Home Depot and, and buy their tiki torches and gather together and, and march in the street, it produces a certain kind of fraternal effect. Uh, and they no longer feel like isolated individuals. Now they feel like they're part of something bigger, and they're emboldened by that. So you don't get thousands of these people together uh, under the banner that we saw and have them claim, you know, take first blood, really, uh, by taking the life of one of the people whom they see as their enemies. You don't get people to then go back to making racially insensitive humor on the internet. That is a letdown. Like after that, you want something bigger. And that would be the reasonable expectation that they want more spectacle or want to inflict more harm on people whom they see as uh, responsible for you know, the, the current conditions of the United States, uh, people whom they've scapegoated, you know, Muslims, Latinos, black people, and so on. And so the only reasonable expectation is that they will do something bigger in the future. And so, you know, we're in a very strange place. I mean, the, the places you named in the past um, that where this has happened, we were about to fight the Nazis in World War II uh, in Germany, and the country was a fevered pitch, pitch around there, and, um, and the Nazis did have some support here. I mean, not, you know, mm-hmm. but the, you know, and then you go to Rockwell in the 60s, and the revolutionary, revolutionary movement was kind of in full, full bloom, um, and, uh, and that came to the fore. Then uh, what happened, of course, in 78. But, so, so, but this is a very strange time we're in. Some people have likened this time. At least one historian and I were talking about this the other day that, uh, on the air that um, 
this is almost akin to the 1870s and the Redeemer movement, which you look mm-hmm. at. Uh, and mm-hmm. taking the, the South back, making America great again, making the South great again, taking it back from f- freed folks who are now helping run the government. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so I mean, where do you think we are? I'm not, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I know Jelani Khabib, you're very bright, I know you're prescient, but, but I mean, where do you think, where do you think we are? No, I think the the Redeemer comparison is exactly right, and I also think that there's another comparison that uh, warrants some thought as well, which is the early 20th century uh, nativist and xenophobic movements, which really drew on the threads um, of, and, and strains of the 19th century uh, racism and the Redeemer movement and combined them, uh, combined anti-black racism with this uh, fear and contempt for uh, immigrants and foreigners. Uh, and so when we saw those things come together in uh, things like uh, the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 and uh, the 1924 Immigration Restriction Act, which was uh, explicitly uh, racist um, in an attempt to make sure that there were not more of the people who they thought were kind of unfit for American society immigrating uh, into the country. Uh, and so those concerns um, came together at a point that looked very similar to the way that we're seeing now in 2017. Uh, and so the, the, the shortage, I guess the short of it is that there are lots of antecedents that we can draw upon. This is not you know, unique. Um, it is not atypical. It's not something that we could say uh, there's no precedent for this in American society. There, there are plenty of precedents, um, so much so that I guess to a keen his, observer of history, this, this might almost look predictable. So, so as we're speaking here, moments before we recorded this conversation together, uh, Donald Trump uh, made a statement to the press, kind of being forced into it, I think, um, where he said, racism is evil, and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other, other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans but also saying that um, to anyone who acted criminally in this weekend's racist violence, you will be held fully accountable. Justice will be delivered. So what do you make of that? Uh, I think it's a fitting statement, but you know, the context of it matters. Context is, is important. It took a bipartisan outcry, an avalanche of bipartisan criticism. The Republican Party, which has stuck with him uh, through some of the more uh, egregious aspects of his presidency uh, broke with him on this. Uh, uh, you know, especially you know, seeing Orrin Hatch talk about his brother dying uh, to try to fight the Nazis. And so, I guess it's a, the, the reasonable question is why did it take this much pressure to produce that statement? We've certainly seen him uh, respond with far less provocation. Uh, you know, criticizing journalists who he doesn't like, criticizing Meryl Streep. Uh, just today, criticizing Kenneth Frazier, the CEO of Merck, who resigned uh, from his advisory council because of the response to uh, Virginia. Uh, and so he fired off a criticism criticism of Frazier almost immediately. Uh, yet it took the concentrated will of both sides of the American political spectrum to push him to make a statement which should have been a kind of easy layup from the get-go. 
So, you know, when you think about the context of these, this, the, 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 of, of the moment we're in now politically, <clears throat> so we have this massive demonstration by these right-wing groups, by these Nazis and Klansmen and racists, um, mostly white men, marching through the streets of Charlottesville. And as many believers, I think as you pointed out as well, this may not be the last time we see this. Um, though I doubt they'll march to places like Baltimore <laughs> or some other spots. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be the, the, the last, it won't be the last time we see it. But where does this fit into the, the political battle of the moment? When you see Republicans internally in disarray, I think, Democrats clearly in disarray internally. Um, every Republican and conservative is not a racist, but racists are abound in that party. Um, yeah. Right. And so and, and and the Democrats have their own issues. Um, so, I mean, when you think of this, this the, the, the confusion and the chaos in some ways of our political life at the moment in America, how does this fit in? I think that this has um, been facilitated by that confusion in American life and also the assault upon American institutions that we've seen um, in the past year. So, and really beyond the past year, but particularly in the past year. Uh, so there are fewer voices that can speak with a kind of moral clarity and a moral weight. Uh, and in the absence of those voices, uh, it's provided a kind of uh, fertile ground, an open space uh, for movements like this one to, to take root. Uh, and you know, clearly, it doesn't help that the highest office in the land is at the very least seeming ambivalent uh, about who they are. And so this reflects really the crisis of the moment that we're in, the, the crisis that we've seen, the crisis that we've, that we've been in uh, for some time. Uh, I don't know what exactly the answer to that is. I think that probably the no-brainer is to unambiguously uh, reject Nazism and uh, white supremacy. That's a, that's a fundamental starting place. You would think that we wouldn't have to articulate that in 2017, but we do. Yeah, I was just uh, looking at a uh, poster that someone just sent me uh, this morning, uh, which was a kind of throwback to the 30s. I'll email you a copy. But it's, um, it's a picture of Uncle Sam mm -hmm. uh, rolling up his sleeves, his thick forearms, holding a gigantic, uh, like a heavy truck wrench, um, and it says, stop the alt-right, we beat them before, we'll beat them now. And there's pictures of Nazis and Nazi flag and Klansmen with a Confederate flag. Kind of the left trying to take up the, the patriotic 30 stands and make it into the 21st century. <laughs> so, um, but I think they're, they're in, in some ways lies this dilemma about who we are as Americans. I'm sorry, they're in some ways what? It's a dilemma about who we are as Americans. What? What symbolizes mm -hmm. us? I think part of what's going on is when I think America is not sure who we are anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that was reflected in the, the election that we saw. Uh, and someone who has been, I mean, people are criticized across different party lines. Uh, but the unanimity with which we saw, especially you know, American newspapers, line up and state, even many of them conservative newspapers, line up to say, that Donald Trump was unfit for the presidency, and that had, you know, did not have the power to stop him from from uh, winning the election. Uh, you know, possibly with, you know, outside help. Who knows? We'll we'll probably know more about that at some time in the future. But however it was, upward of 60 million Americans thought that this person was a credible candidate, and that they could uh, find themselves 
represented without conflict by someone with the really execrable views of the world that Donald Trump holds. I think that's a sim- uh, kind of a symbol or symptom, rather, of the bigger crisis that we're, that we're facing right now. Well, I, this is we've been much, it's been much too long since we last spoke, and this has been a brief but great conversation. Um, and uh, Dr. Jelani Cobb, it's always an honor to have you with us. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, just keep your wisdom and wit rolling. We need it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mark Steiner Show podcast, produced and edited by Calvin Perry. Join us next week for the second episode.